Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now this week's message. All right, so we are in Romans chapter 5 through 8. We're doing a series called Growing in Grace because we completed uh, chapters 1 through 5 or half of 5. And it talked about what grace was and how we were justified. In other words, declared righteous by God. People who were not righteous were seen as righteous in the eyes of God based on what Jesus Christ did. When you accept Christ, he floods your account, your, your account, your righteousness account, which you had none. He floods it with righteousness. That's how you get saved. But the story doesn't end there. Chapter 5, it keeps going. And that's what we're doing. We're just going to keep going. And uh, let's see. You should have a chart. If you brought yours back, that's terrific. I hope you'll hang on to this. Uh, This is Romans 5 through 8 from right here to right there. This is the first half of 5. This is the second half of 5. And that's where our our attention is going now is from uh, this from here to here. And I wanted you to see the reason the color, the way the color is, is because the blue here in the first part of 5 represents what you hear when you read the end of Romans 8. And uh, the second half of 5 is what you read, what you hear when you read the first part of 8. So it's kind of a, what they, what's called a ring composition. That means you're hearing again what you have already heard. It's as if Paul doesn't want you to miss it, this phenomenal point. And the reason you see Romans 8 in the picture of a kind of a mountain is because lots of commentators describe Romans 8 as sticking out and unique and sometimes it's referred to in the mountain range of scripture the highest peak is Romans 8 so that's why it's pictured as a mountain in this in this illustration remember the power of the gospel we read in chapter 1 Paul says it's the power of God unto salvation what is salvation that's what we're asking well It's salvation from, first, the penalty of sin, then the power of sin, and then ultimately the presence of sin when we get to heaven. All right, so there is an element of grace in all of these. In fact, grace just starts to build, and it builds all the way to the end. It never stops. Okay, so that's the picture of kind of what we're looking at, because And chapter 5 is really on the security of the believer. That's what the lock is here for. The whole section is on the assurance of the believer. Okay, the the security of the believer. 5, 12 through 21, with that in mind, the security in mind is going to answer an important question. Because in the mind of anyone who has just heard what Paul has said, that is, you mean to tell me somebody just put righteousness in my account? I had none. In fact, I was overdrawn and somebody just flooded my account with the kind of righteousness that God accepts, somebody would hear that and go, wow, you mean one person could, could do that? Yes. And you would think to yourself, okay, well, what does that mean for me? Uh, and really, two things will come to mind. Is it secure? How long does it last? That's one of your questions. Well, can, does it get me all the way to the end? Or is it just this... And then the second question was, hey, if it does get me all the end, that's really great. Does that mean I can sin? Can I do what I want since I'm already in? That's the second question that gets asked. And Paul's like, no, 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 that would be a really, really gross misunderstanding 
of grace if you live like that, okay? So he's going to answer both those questions in these texts. How can one person accomplish all that for me? And what does it mean for me? And to do it, he's going to, he creates an analogy, okay? Uh, and by the way, don't let me finish, yell at me if I leave this stage and I haven't done chapter, if I'm filled in the blanks in chapter 5 today. Just yell at me if I haven't done it, all right? Okay, so when we get to chapter 5 and 12 to 21, in order for Paul to make his point and start to say, well, is it secure and can I sin? Is that stuff all in that package deal? All right, well, Paul is going to explain that, but in 5, 12 through 21, he's going to compare us to Adam. So let me just go ahead and go to the first verse. Therefore, he said, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin. So he's talking about our connection to Adam. If you're in Adam, then you sin and you die. He makes that clear. And all of us are there. All of us. Remember, this is a global text. This, this applies to everyone. And how do you know it applies to everyone? Well, do you know anyone who's not going to die? That's how you know. Okay? It's that simple. Okay? How do I know I'm a sinner? You're going to die. That's the penalty. So we get the same uh, we, we sin just like he did. We get the same penalty he does. You say, but I wasn't there, though. How, how can God impute that to me? Some mysterious way, there's a solidarity with, with you and Adam, with me and Adam, and we're connected to him, and his sin became our sin, and his judgment became our judgment, and that's just how it is. That is how it is. Okay? We all somehow, in and with Adam, sinned. Okay? That means... One man, through one act, everyone a sinner. So his comparison is going to be with Christ. That's his whole point. Because his whole point is to tell you this. In Christ, you get righteousness and you live. Just the opposite. You get righteousness and you live. And guess what? You weren't there. You didn't do anything. It wasn't up to you. It was purely grace. It was a gift. Just like in Adam, it happened to you, and you, you weren't even there. Same thing with Christ. You can't save yourself. You didn't participate in it. He does all the work. That's the illustration. So the illustration at the end of the day for Paul is to say, one man, one act. Adam, Christ. Both are the same. So he does that analogy to kind of prove that what Jesus did, you can't improve upon. You didn't do anything about it. Now, that your connection to Adam, maybe you've ever wondered why circumcision was Abraham's sign. You know, anybody would have been Abraham, you would have asked for a better sign. You know, maybe like a decoder ring or uh, something like that. Hey, a decoder ring would be really nice, God, rather than uh, circumcision. Okay, yeah, anything. How come Noah got the rainbow and you're making me cut myself? Okay, Noah gets the promise, <laughs> the rainbow, you're going to make me cut myself. Yeah, it's a big, big, serious deal. All right, so, but why? Why? What was God picturing there? It wasn't just the removal of skin, which it was, because you could have removed any part. You could, certainly could have removed an easier part of the skin. But the problem is, is that the, <laughs> you really could have. We could do a whole talk on that right now. <laughs> uh, I, I'm very passionate about that conversation. All right, uh, but what happened is uh, because sin is, you know, part of creation, and you pass it along, it was done right there as a part of that whole picture. To say, you have to change at a level that's 
far different than just your individual sin. You're connected to Adam. And that's why we produce little sinners. They're little cute little sinners. They all come out sinning. All right? Uh, so that was, that, that's the picture right there. So here's what happens. When you read it, right, you see that. And then in verse, uh, the next verses, we saw this all already. Okay, before the law was given, just remember, before the law was given, you were still counted guilty because you were in Adam. Remember, the law didn't come along until Moses. Okay, so Paul's whole argument, just historical. He's historically proving that you're a sinner even before the law came. Because sometimes we think, well, there was no law. How, how could you hold me accountable? I'm holding you accountable because your connection to Adam. All right? When the law finally comes along, it's not until Moses, but we're still guilty, we still die. People died before Moses gave the law. That means they were sinners in Adam. Okay? Just kind of as a review. Now watch. In other words, see, they didn't sin by breaking a command as Adam did, because Adam broke a command. He wasn't supposed to eat from the tree. But we didn't break a command. Adam did it. But we still, his sin is imputed to us in that sense. Now watch. Adam now is named, and notice what he says. He is a pattern or a type of the one to come. All right, now here's the picture that I, that I want you to see and what he's trying to say. In verse 12, he connects you to Adam in one act, okay? The one act, one act, one man. All right, in verse 13 to 14, he tries to prove it to you. He proves it with the law. But at the end of 14... He makes his comparison, and he calls Adam a type. There's so much to, to wrap up in that reality. That tells you all along that what happened to Adam, he was only a shadow of something really big happening that God was already planning and doing. God had always already intended to reveal himself through Christ and to show you the wonders of his love long before Adam ever sinned. And when Adam sinned, all it did was provide God the perfect opportunity to reveal who he really was. And that was always the plan. So I've told you before, you really wouldn't know all of the wonders of God had we not sinned. We wouldn't know them. And so Adam, all, all Adam did, he was a type. He was a type to show you that salvation will come through one man just like sin came through one man. See, that's the picture. But he calls him a type. Now, anytime you put two things side by side and say, the only thing Adam and Christ had in comparison, the only thing they had in comparison was one man, one act. That's what I want you to see. But when he calls him a type, then in verses 15 to 17, you ought to know this when you think of Romans 5. Once you put them side by side, all of a sudden you realize there are differences. And I just... Thought I'd give you a little illustration. Uh, the guys have some pictures of my dogs. This is, uh, this is Chevy. There's a boxer. Uh, my son drives a little red Chevy. It was his first car. It was his dog. So his, his girlfriend came up with the idea of Chevy. We love the name, and that's her name. Okay, Chevy. Uh, and then I have uh, Chip. Chip showed up at our door. In fact, Gail told Mikey, we'll never have a dog unless one just shows up at our door. That's literally what, because he asked for a dog forever. And, uh, and Chip showed up. So, uh, and if you put them side by side, now when you just think of the dogs individually, it's just a big dog picture that comes to your mind. When you put them side by side, what happens? You start to notice some differences. So give me some. Color, obvious, yes. What else? 
Yeah, the snout. One's long, one's, you know, obviously. What else? Tail. Okay, one's long, one's short. Okay, size difference and their temperament. Oh, she drives him nuts. That's how it's supposed to be. Uh, and there they are. So you put them side by side. So here's what happens. Paul puts Adam and Christ side by side to show you, here's the one thing I want you to know about them that is the same. Through one man, one action, came sin. Just like in Christ, one action came salvation. But when you put them side by side, you notice differences. And that's what verses 15 to 17 do. They show you the differences. Okay? Immediately, they want to show you what the differences are. In fact, he says what Christ did was a gift. What Adam did was a trespass. That's the first thing he says. So what we saw last week was Christ surpasses Adam and overrules Adam. So even though everyone dies in Adam, in Christ, he overturned that. And if you're in Christ, you live. So only Christ could have overchanged that. And it's a gift. This is something you didn't deserve. This is something you did. That you did it and deserved it. All right? So you've got this analogy between these two characters. Uh, so Adam, what I mean by sur we surpass Adam is much more. It's greater. You see that phrase in here, much more. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Okay, so whatever Christ did, it totally blew up whatever was 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 up in Adam. And, uh, and the point is to say this. They're not equal. The power that saves you is far greater than the power that ruined you. Okay? The power that saves you is far more powerful than the power that ruined you. And we know how powerful Adam's ruin was because we all experienced the sin and death, the two villains of his epic, the two villains of his domain, we are under their rule. They were powerful until Christ came along and overturned it. And remember, he didn't just overturn it and say, hey, I'm going to fix everything. I'm going to bring you all the way back to the garden, put you back where Adam was. I'm going to take you beyond Adam. And now I'm going I'm to load you up with Christ's righteousness. I'm going to see my own son when I look at you based on what I've done. So far surpasses what we were in Adam where sin was just a nuisance, and God says, ah, I just don't want sin to be a nuisance anymore. You're just going to be back in the garden. No, that's not the case. Far greater scenario and story. Uh, and then you see the extensiveness of forgiveness, because remember we said last week, one sin of Adam incited the judgment of God. Only took one sin. But we all know that when... Uh, once we got here, there were a whole lot more sin than that. And that's the little nuance you see right here. Uh, the result of one man's sin, okay, followed one sin and brought condemnation. You read judgment and condemnation. Judgment's like the verdict. Condemnation is the penalty. But the gift followed many trespasses. So that means when grace came along, Grace covered every sin that was ever committed, not just the one. The one sin incited God's judgment. It was all our sin that his grace covered. See, that's the difference. So that's kind of what we focused on last week. 
Well, there's another comparison. There's, the, the comparison continues in verse 17, and that's what I want you to see, the third one. Uh, notice what he says. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned, death reigned through that one man. Let's stop there, okay? So in Adam, we're separated from God and death rules. C.S. Lewis, I guess it was, who said, uh, death smiles at you like a Cheshire cat, an evil little grin. And yesterday, I uh, uh, did a funeral for the mom of one of, the, one of the gals that was in our youth group when I was a youth pastor years ago. She's part of our church now. And um, when, we, when we went to the graveside to do it, the way we parked and where we had to go, we had to walk through the cemetery, which is always a good thing, by the way, to take a little stroll through the cemetery every now and then. And we had to walk, you know, you do, you do your best not to step on stuff, and you realize how kind of sacred the ground is to some degree, and you try to make your way. And I was walking with Gail, and Gail says to me, you know, there's a bunch of there's dead people under us. You know, she's walking like this. I said, yeah, be careful. And reach up and grab you. I've seen it done. I've seen it happen. And, uh, but you get this overwhelming. I'm looking at names, you know, and uh, there's one there that said, uh, born such and such, but with no death date yet. So you know it was a plot somebody's bought and getting ready to use because they know it's coming because death rules. All right? You could all go, hey, listen, best investment you ever make is a plot because you're going to use it. Okay? Not a lake house, a plot. <laughs> Not a lake house. Okay? Because you were enslaved. Now notice, really important picture that, that really comes together in Romans 6 is the idea that Death is personified as a character, as a ruler, as a king. He reigns. Sin reigns. You'll see it later in the text. So these two villains are, are they're like royalty. And they dominate in an absolute monarchy. But notice what he says. How much more will those, this is a very, very important line, who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift. Here are these two words emphasized again. Notice this word of righteousness. Reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, say a few things about that. If, before we look at it closely, if death reigns in Adam, what reigns in Christ? What would be obvious? Life, right? But notice what he says. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness, what? So who reigns? Those who receive Christ. We do. We reign. We reign in this new epic, in this new era. You say, what does that mean? Because obviously life is included because we reign in life. In other words, we dominate in life. What Adam hoped would happen when he ate the fruit and everything didn't happen happens when we come to Christ. We actually do reign. We become kind of kings. Like the song said in Overcame, all authority and all victory is yours. That's right. Revelation teaches it. We reign with Christ. We dominate in life. It's a really important picture. And it starts to set up how anyone would imagine that they would go on living like they still were in Adam if they're in Christ is beyond Paul. It's beyond Paul. That's why he's showing you what he's showing you. You dominate in life under Christ. You're not just getting life. 
You're dominating in it. You're not just a victim or a player in a drama. You get authority to act in a holy, righteous way, a kind of kingly existence. Two different men, two radically different conditions. One you die, one you dominate in life. So when Christ, this is what one commentator said, God acting freely in Christ possesses the power to more than reverse the effects of Adam's human decision. We are not slaves, we are kings. What we became in Adam was slaves to the reign of death. What we have now become is kings. Do you see how grace is so much better? Like the tail on grace is so much longer than on the boxer. That's the idea. Paul is saying it's so much different. Okay, you dominate. And notice this. This is really important to understand all the, like, if you went through and circled everywhere that says many and all throughout this text, you go, who in the world is he talking about? Well, he'll tell you slowly but surely he answers the question. The reason for the language of many and all is to give you the universal impact of Adam and Christ. Listen, everyone who's in Adam dies. We already know that all the way to the end. We can speak of all people. Everyone in Christ, we know not the whole world comes to Christ. So why would Paul use the word all? It's only to match the language of the picture to make sure you know that what Christ did is, is, is as extensive and far more extensive in its power and in its effect. Because he tells you who can get what Christ offers. He tells you right here. Those who what? Receive it. Because it's a what? It's a gift. Okay, so this you have to receive. And that sets the tone, all right? It's not automatic like in Adam. Christ, you have to receive it. I was trying to illustrate this because this sort of marks a, a little interesting twist that Paul is going to put. Remember, he's using words that are very, he keeps repeating words. Like if you read the whole text, 12 to 21, you go, how many times are you going to say that same thing? It looks like he's saying the same thing over and over again. It's almost monotonous, you know? But, Paul is very precise in his language. You can see just a few little things. If you read it close, you see he's twisted a few things to show you how much better grace is, all right, than what happened in Adam. He twists it. This is so powerful. And he starts to make a shift to helping you understand what has really happened to you in Christ. Can't emphasize this enough. What happened when I came to Christ and got forgiveness was not all that happened in salvation. And Paul is trying to help you understand, you, you've become a king in life. You dominate in a different reality. You don't even live in that same realm anymore. You live in a completely different realm. Grace didn't just justify you, make you right with God. Grace removed you from that whole regime of Adam and put you in a new one where you dominate and you live and you rule in life. When we were in uh, Swaziland, when I was in Africa, you know, a few weeks back, uh, we, we, you fly into Johannesburg and then you fly over again to Swaziland, a little country there in southern Africa. On the way home, you've, you know, we drive to that little airport again. And you can look out the windows and you can see the tarmac. A couple of planes will land out there and you got to walk all the way out to them, a couple hundred yards. And uh, so you're just standing there looking out the window. All of a sudden, this military group starts to show up as you're looking out the window in the tarmac waiting for your plane to show up. You can see it all happening. Um, 
this military, this group of military guys shows up, goes, walks right out to the middle of the tarmac. And uh, they start setting up this like pinnacle. You know, a, a, it was red velvet with tassels and brass poles and velvet steps. And then they rolled out this red carpet that had to go at least 100 yards all the different ways because evidently the king, we figured out, what's going on? The king's flying in. The king is going to fly in, and when he flies in, he's going to get off of his plane. The moment he gets out, he's going to step under this pinnacle type, whatever this is, like almost looks like a little throne. And then he's going to come down the steps, and he's never going to hit pavement. He's going to walk on red carpet all the way to this. You look over to the left, you see five or six big black cars. And beside them is all these important people dressed in Swaziland garb, which I wouldn't know the name of. Even if they told me, I wouldn't be able to say it. All this garb, beautiful, very colorful, just like you would expect. And lots of people all waiting for the king to arrive. And they told us if the king arrives, they're going to shut the airport down. We're not going to be able to do anything until he leaves. And who knows how long he's going to be under the little thing and how long he's going to walk in the garbage. We could miss our plane. So we're like, oh, let's get out of here before the king comes. Part of us wanted to see the king. Part of us didn't want to see the king. <laughs> Turns out we got on our plane and walked away. We walked right past all of the hoopla. And as I reflected on that, I was thinking how many of us are royal no-shows? God has set up a reality where we are kings, where we dominate in life, and we and we don't show up. Can you think of your life as the circumstances that happen in your life? And you say, how am I going to respond to this? And God says, here's, here's the kingly, royal way I've created you now to operate. And you act like a pauper spiritually when you don't do it. It was just a graphic image to me of the kind of reigning in life, dominating in life image and how many times we don't act like kings at all when it comes to holiness and righteousness. We act like we, act like we weren't kings at all. We act totally surprised of the possibility of being what God wants us to be. And some of us even view our lives as going, that could never happen. That could never happen. I could never be like that. I could never be like that. I could never act like that. I could never choose that. That's how we act. And God's saying, no, no, no. In Christ, you dominate. You don't just have a right standing before me. It's just a powerful image that I've benefited from in my head. And then you get to verse 18. Consequently, he's going to go back. Here's what he did. In verse 12, he only gave you half of his story. Here's what happened in Adam. He's supposed to have right then given you, here's what happened in Christ, but he doesn't. He doesn't do it until verse 18. Just as one trespass re resulted in condemnation for all people... That's what he said in verse 12. So also, now here's what he was going to say, but he got sidetracked by a lot. One righteous act. Notice the language change. Now it's one righteous act. Not just one act. One righteous act resulting in justification and, the li and life for all people. Here you get the two of them side by side. Two radically different conditions. One leads to death and one leads to life. And there's only two possibilities for all of humanity right here. That's the universal language. Who are the all? Who are the all people? Well, remember, verse 17 told us who they were. Who were they? Those who receive. 
The universal language is just there to tell you that these are the only two realities. Adam, and guess what? Christ overcame them, and there's nothing that can overcome, overcome him. The universal language is there to tell you that Christ will never be overcome. Adam could be overcome. Christ can never be overcome. He's the last Adam. There's not another Adam coming to overrule what Christ did. That's, that's the language. So you can no more change your position in, in Christ than you could in, in Adam. If you're in Adam, you're dying. If you're in Christ, you are living. That's the idea. Okay? And then verse 19. Now look at verse 19. For just as through the disobedience, now notice the righteous act and disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. We already saw that. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So we were either made sinners or made righteous. Now watch this because this is so incredible and such an important transition for your spiritual life. So what is the spiritual life and how do you grow? And what does it mean? Well, Romans 6 will really elaborate, but Paul gives you the little roots of it right here. He tells you, in Christ, something happened. In Adam, because of his disobedience, you were made a sinner. So you follow in his disobedience. But in Christ, his act of obedience, you are constituted righteous. You are not just, we didn't just flood your account with righteousness and you go, yay, yay, thank you. Something different happened. He constitutes you toward being able to live righteously where you dominate in life at a righteous level. Now, let me give you a, let me give you a picture because it'll help you. I have this little chart in here. Okay? So, here is the disobedience of Adam. Here is the obedience, as Paul puts it, of Christ. Okay? So, here's what he's saying. In Adam, you were, you were constituted, I'm just going to put, constituted a sinner. In Christ, in Christ, he says, because of his obedience act, you were constituted righteous. Okay? These are like clubs. So imagine you're part of a, a sinner club. This is a sinner's club. All right? This is like a sinnership. That's what that is. It's a little sinnership. This is your little club. Okay? So if you're part of this club, guess what you get to do? And guess what you're going to do? You're going to what? You're going to sin. Well, Christ has created his own new club, better club. It's a much better club. And this club, guess what you do in this club? You live righteous. That's what you do in the club. You wouldn't say to anyone in this club, hey, you can join our sin club, but you don't have to sin if you don't want to. What would that be? Hey, you can be an Adam, but you don't have to sin. Come on. That's insane. Because if you're here, you're going to sin. The opposite is true too. Hey, you can come be in Christ. You can be part of the righteous club, but you don't have to do all the righteousness though. Nobody wants to do that. Everybody likes being in this club, but nobody likes doing the righteous stuff. Absurd. You see how absurd that is? Listen, what Christ has done is put you in a new club. You used to be a part of a guy ahead who disobeyed. Now you're part of a guy who obeys. You've been constituted righteous. Guess what you're going to do? 
righteousness. You don't get to come to Christ and go, well, yeah, but I want to pass on the righteous stuff. I don't want to go everywhere he leads. I don't want to do everything he says. Just give me the good stuff. You don't get to do that. Okay? So that's what he's saying in verse 19. Now look what he says in verse 20 and 21 as he wraps this thing up. Now, as soon as I read this, and it just gets better, this is almost done, but you're going to love this. Uh, he brings the law back up. Now, here's why, and when you're reading the text at first, you don't catch it. It's not easy to catch. He brought the law up at first to say you were a sinner long before it ever came. Well, if you're a Jew and the law means so much to you, remember Romans 2 and Romans 4, the law means so much what in the world was the, why give the law then? I mean, if we were already sinners, what, what was the purpose of the law to come in Moses anyway? And he comes back to that almost. At first you think, this is anticlimactic. Why go back to the law, Paul? You've already told us so many great things. Why go backwards? Well, he only goes backwards to take you further, okay? Like a slingshot, he's just bringing you back to let you go. That's what he's doing here. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Oh, this is, if you're a Jew and you hear this, you go, no, 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 we love the law. If you're a religious person, you love it, you don't want to hear this. You don't want to hear that when you talk about the law, you're not thinking of something sacred. You're thinking of something that came in in the epic of Adam. It fits on the side of Adam's epic, not Christ's. When God brings the law in, he doesn't set it on Christ's side. He sets it on whose side? Adam's. So sin might increase. This is going to go crazy for a Jew. You hear that? You go, oh my goodness. And this is so powerful. Because notice what he says. That sin might increase. How does that happen? Okay, God. And the idea was brought in. Listen, listen. This is literally what the word snuck in is the idea. Now, commentators don't want to overly emphasize the snuck-in idea because they don't want to seem like the law didn't play a significant role in God's deal. It did play a significant role, but it plays a kind of sinister role. All right? And the role is to increase sin. How does the law increase sin? The law increases sin because now that there's a law, I learn something about myself. I learned that now I don't just sin because I'm an Adam. Now I sin, and because there's a law, and what... what, what I realize I'm rebellious. I'm actually worse than what I thought I was because now here's a clear law telling me not to do it, and guess what? I'm still doing it. Don't you have kids like that? No, your kids come out sinners, and they're adorable sinners for a little while. Then they get to a spot where the first time they can understand a rule that you give them and they break it, and haven't you ever been standing there if you've had kids that are little and you tell them don't do that and they start doing it right while you're telling them? That's, that, re, that's, that says something about that little kid. Okay? That says something about that little kid. That little guy's in trouble. All right? That's what the law does. The law reveals that you're more than just a sinner and Adam. You're a rebellious one. You, you choose it. You turn your back on God and you choose it. It's as if when the law came, it turned everyone into Adams. See, for a while, we were just connected to Adam. Until Moses came, we were just connected to Adam, saying, oh, I'm a sinner because he's a sinner. 
He broke the law, and I'm a sinner. Then the law came, and guess what? Well, I'm just like Adam. The law came, and I did it too. I'm just like Adam. That was Adam's all over the world. See the difference? When the law came, we just all became Adam in practice because we broke the law on purpose. So the law, one commentator says, simply actualized and radicalized the crisis of my atomatic human existence, my connection to Adam, I just saw it in full color. That's what the law does. You know what that tells you? The law is not your friend. The law was never intended to help you get to God. That's, not why, that's why it's not on the grace side. It's on the sin side. All, it was never intended to help you. It was always intended to show you something. Uh, my son's girlfriend said uh, last week we were talking about this. She said that when she's in school, her, her teacher, when she'd do something wrong, would make them stand in front of a mirror. He called it the mirror of shame. And you stand in that mirror, and it just ref- you're just looking at the guy who did it. That's all you do. You say, yeah, I'm the guy who did it. Well, that was a great image, and that's exactly what the law does. It just shows you just how evil you can be. That's what it does. You know the New Orleans Saints, the whole issue going on with the New Orleans Saints, okay? If, if you're good, some of you that might not keep up with football and that kind of stuff, uh, you've you got spiritual problems. That's okay. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Uh, the godly I'm speaking to now who understand ESPN really well and know what's going on with the New Orleans Saints. They're in trouble because for the last three years, their team has been putting money in a pool to hurt other players and do some significant damage to other players. It's a, it's a definite rule in the NFL. You're not allowed to do that. Now, for three years, they've been telling them not to do it, but they're still doing it. They just shun the whole deal. And as the information keeps coming out, you learn, and what, one of the things that we learned this past week was that Roger Goodell, commissioner of the NFL, at the beginning of the year, even though everybody knows the rule, still at the beginning of the year, every team gets a letter saying there will be no bounties. And then after Thanksgiving, before the playoffs, comes another letter, there will be no bounties. And then there's a poster you hang up in your locker rooms. It's no bounties. We don't do bounties. No player will receive any extra money for doing anything. It's all over the place. So you see what happens. You've got two letters and, the, and, the, and you shun all of it. What does that say? What does that say about you? Okay? You don't have players going, well, I never saw the letter, and I never saw the poster, and I never saw anything like that. Oh, no. See, when, you, when the law's there, it just makes it that much worse. I told you, and you still did it. That's how much trouble you're in, and that's how much better grace is because grace handles it. So what you see is grace ener- or law energizes sin. Notice what he says. Here's, here's another one of those really big buts. Okay, here's a big but in your text. Where sin increased, and it had to increase... Because God helped you see that you're a sinner. That's why it increased. Grace, and here's a great word for you, superabounded. This abounded, this has the intense prepositional phrase on the front end of it, which says, super superabounded. Grace way outdid it. Even though grace was inflamed, uh, well, I'm not going to do that. Grace increased all the more. Just super abounded. That's the image. Powerful. So if the law energizes sin, what does grace energize? 
Grace doesn't give you the freedom to sin. Grace energizes righteousness. That's the point. So powerful. This is so obvious, so powerful. And notice what he says. So also that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might. Now look who reigns. Now grace reigns. Now you live in a world not where death reigns, but where grace reigns, if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, grace reigns through righteousness. It's just very, very important. If you're in the domain of sin, you sin. If you're in the domain of grace, you do righteousness. And now, grace is a dominant force. We all look at grace, and here's where we make our mistake. We all look at grace and say, oh, God, thank you for the grace. And we take our stuff and run. We take our grace, and we run, and we go do what we want. We're like the 18-year-old kid who's, who lives in a really, really wealthy family who just funds this kid with all this money. And, he, and they just basically say, go spend it however you want to. And we think we're like the 18-year-old after we get salvation. We just could go do anything we want now with all that grace that's been given to us. But all of a sudden now we see, no, 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 no. Grace isn't just something that helps me receive a simple gift. Grace sets up a whole new dominion that runs me. You see? That's really important. This is where we all make the mistake. Grace sets up a whole new reality which dominates my world. That I'm now subject to grace. It's a whole new world order. It's a whole new deal. It's Peyton Manning used to play for the Indianapolis Colts, but now he plays for the Denver Broncos. How many Denver Bronco fans are there going to be? And poor Tebow had to go to the sin city of the world. <laughs> Satan's team, the New York Jets. I'm telling you, they play for Satan. It's just a fact. Poor guy. He, he went the other way. So now he played, guess what? He's going to now play for the, Colt, uh, for the Broncos. He's going to trade in that uniform. He's going to fly into a different airport. He's got a beautiful place to go to. It's far more beautiful than Indianapolis. All right, he's going to be playing in all right, Denver. He's got new uniform, new team, new fans, new reality, new world, the whole thing awaiting him. It's going to be awesome. He does not play for the Colts anymore. He can't live like he played for the Colts anymore. He can't act like he played. He can't do what they did over there. He's got to be something else here because it's a whole new regime. That's essentially what happened here. You didn't just get a new jersey. You got a whole new regime, a whole new coach, a whole new world in which grace reigns. That's the image. That's why it's guaranteed. And guess what? Guess how long it is. All of a sudden, Paul adds that adjective, which he hasn't done all the way. Remember, he's getting more precise as he goes. It's eternal. That's how long it is. Guess how long you're connected to God? Forever. Now, let me give you, let me give you just a quick picture of this, and then we'll be done. This is the last thing I want to say. Oh, shoot. Did I lose it? I did. Let me do this. I want to show you. Oh, this is the picture. Let me just start right here. Grace, when we first get it, it justifies us. That's the first thing that happens. It justifies us. Grace, after that, Paul just said, becomes a force in our lives. Dominates us. And it dominates us in righteousness. And guess what? The rest of Romans tells us, 1 Peter 1.13 says, we fix our hope on grace. That's going to be revealed 
in Jesus Christ when he comes back. The whole process is based on grace. It was never based on you. It was always based on grace. Not just part of it, all of it is based on grace. You have the grace to be right with God. You have the grace to live righteously. And you have the grace that God's going to provide. And when you see him, you'll be turned into what he wants you to be turned into. It's all by grace. Peyton Manning, I'll close with this. Peyton Manning said at the podium when he was introduced as a Denver Bronco, he said, uh, you know, I'm so happy to be a part of this organization, so happy to be a part of a new team, so happy to have a new locker room, so happy to have all these things. And he said out loud, he said, you know, I've already told Elway and whoever that other guy is, the other big guy in that deal, I need your help. John Fox, the coach, I need your help. Help me acclimate to this brand new reality that I live in. Help me become a Denver Bronco. Help me connect with these players. Help me connect with this system. Help me connect with everything that's new here to me because it's all new to me. So here's what happened. He's already stopped acting like an Indianapolis Colt. Now he needs to be acclimated to this new Denver Bronco world. And that's exactly what Romans 6 does. Romans 6 says, you're telling me grace is a force and now I'm a part of some righteous club? Yes. Well, how do I get acclimated to righteousness when I've been a really gifted sinner? Like, I've been really good at it. I was great as a sinner. How are you going to help me lose those habits and become somebody who's now in this righteous club? That's what Romans 6 teaches you. How do you acclimate to this new regime that you're under where righteousness dominates, not sin? Next weekend, I'm going to close by just telling you this. Next weekend is a, kind of a unique weekend. Week before Easter, Sunday mornings set aside. We set it aside months ago to have the, our friends from Danley, Honduras, come and be a part of our service to kind of set up our summer missions trips. And the pastor's coming of the church there that we partner with, and he's bringing the mayor of Danley to actually be here with us to talk about what his city really needs so that we can help with the trips that we go down this summer do some things to help them as a city. It's going to be very exciting. That's the service next Sunday morning. He'll be here in the service. So I won't be able to get to Romans 6, which I have to get to Romans 6 before we get to Easter, which is the next week, and that's Romans 7. So what we've decided to do, uh, I say we, it was I at first, and then we came along to the idea, and that was Sunday night we're going to have a service, and it's going to do Romans 6. We're going to, we're going to, can, we're going to kind of like cancel small groups, let you come together as your groups here, and at 5 o'clock next Sunday night, I'm going to walk us through all of Romans 6, which is a perfect text for Passion Week leading up to Easter. That way there you'll be ready for Romans 7. I want to have the biggest Sunday night crowd we've ever had, 5 o'clock till we're done. Be about 6.30. And then we'll have child care. It's all provided. All you got to do is, is get here. You don't have to sign up to be here. You don't have to sign up for child care. You just have to be here. All right? So I want to encourage you to be here next Sunday night at 5 o'clock for this um, to do Romans 6. And I'm going to tell you, it's so amazing. It's just an amazing text. You don't want to miss it.